This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the I Will Not Sit Down edition. It's Friday, April 22nd, and I'm Miriam Ibrahim, a legislature reporter for the Journal and your Press Gallery host. It's a bittersweet episode for me today, as this is my last day with the Journal as I embark on a new job with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. So this is my final episode of the Press Gallery. But listeners need not fear, your beloved Press Gallery podcast will continue with a new host next week. Founder Sarah O'Donnell has promised us all that. So today joining me to give their input are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. You're dead to me, Mary. I'm just so that we're this we're clear on this. You're running away and leaving me and I'm very sad. We all know how Paula feels all the time. <laughs> but, but, but other than that, hello. Hello. Hello everyone. <laughs> Happy beautiful spring Friday. And health reporter Keith Gerine. I'm also very sad, but uh, you're not dead to me like Paul says. Oh, good. Okay, so part of me is still alive. (laughs) Wonderful. Let's get right to it, because it was a really busy week in politics for Alberta and elsewhere, actually. It started with a showdown between interim progressive conservative leader Rick McIver and Speaker of the Assembly Bob Warner over a private member's motion. Not the thing you think is going to create a ruckus in the legislature. Then, a spike in sick leave and long-term disability among Alberta Health Services employees over the past several years has the health minister under fire. But first up, Greg Selinger's NDP government in Manitoba was dealt a devastating blow in that province's election this week, whittling the party's former majority status down to a mere 14 seats as the progressive conservatives swept to power with an astonishing 40 out of 57 seats in the legislature. Now, that leaves... Premier Rachel Notley as the country's last NDP premier standing. What does that mean for Alberta's NDP government? Graham, I want to start with you. You asked Notley about this very thing in an interview this week. What did she say? How did she play well, it? Well, she was joking. She said, I'm not the last of a line. I'm the beginning of a new wave of NDP premiers coming in. Well, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, but I think that you know, I should have to joke about it. Otherwise, you know, if you don't laugh, you kind of cry over it as from her point of view. Um, it is Interesting, though, for her, all of a sudden, because she is the only NDP premier, gives her a lot more clout within the party at the federal level in terms of leadership. Uh, who's ah. going to be? You know, she, she could help get a leader chosen at the federal level, one more to her liking. And also, uh, it may mean that she has more clout when it comes to things like the Leap Manifesto and defeating that as well. You know, the one we talked about last time. Oh, how could we forget? Yes, exactly. So I think that even though it's bad news for the NDP overall, it may be good news in some ways for Rachel Notley. Interesting. Okay, Paula, this comes on the heels of another conservative victory in Saskatchewan a few weeks back with Brad Wall. 
some have sort of said there's a bit of a conservative resurgence or a reawakening or a rebirth or a, you know, there's new life uh, in, in the conservative movement on the prairies. What do you think about it? I think that Canada has a long history of having a balance of powers. I mean, and traditionally, when federal politics moves to the left, provincial politics often moves to the right sort of as a counterweight. So you could argue that that's what's happening here, that Trudeau's very crushing victory in the federal election, uh, which everybody said at the time was the death of Canadian conservatism, right? So uh, federally, their chances are squished at the moment. And so I think some of that energy is going back into provincial elections. But I think sometimes, sometimes things just happen and it's a question of personalities as much as anything else in local conditions. Brad Wall is very personally popular in Saskatchewan and I think there was a lot of feeling that Greg Salinger had worn out his welcome but it was less about an embrace of conservatism than it was about the fact that the Salinger government was just stale and tired and and people were fed up with it um, the way people here were fed up with the conservative government. Uh, you know so I think it's it can be dangerous to try and read too much into this. I always think it's a bit like those things, you know, where they say, well, the NHL team that won the second game of the first series is, you know, in 99 cases, right. you, know, you know, you can you can look for statistical patterns where they don't actually exist. The opposition, though, in Alberta here want to paint this as, well, you know, voters elsewhere are seeing what the Alberta NDP are doing and they're seeing the damage <laughs> that they're doing. <laughs> and this represents, you know, a repudiation of NDP governments across the country. I don't know if I buy that voters in other provinces to over are actually paying that much attention to what's happening here. I, I, I don't know that voters pay much attention to what's happening in their own province to begin with. But Keith, do you do you buy that or is that politicking on the opposition's part? No, I mean, you heard the laughter in here. It, 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 is, <laughs> it is a little laughable. I mean, when I go to cast a ballot, I don't think, oh, God, well, look, look at what's going on in Quebec or Ontario or New Brunswick. I, you know, that's going to affect who I vote for in Alberta in a provincial election. No, I don't think I don't think people do that. I think Paul is right that. The, the the result in Manitoba had a, more to do with the the failures of that Greg Selinger government in Saskatchewan. Brad Wall is a very popular leader and has been, and maybe people there are more have have memories of their own NDP government back in the '90s, uh, which uh, which was a, a disaster in the end in some ways, where the government went broke and they had to cut all kinds of services, close rural hospitals, and so on. So I suspect that's more on their minds than than anything going on in Alberta yeah, right also, now. Yeah. Also, just quickly with Selinger, he promised he wouldn't be raising the sales tax and he did yeah and there's a lesson there i think for um the ndp here and they know that they can't make a promise regarding taxation and then break the promise during a uh, a mandate which yeah. is why they're kind of being really vague here what happens after this mandate's over will there be a sales tax in alberta if there's still the government <laughs> in the years to come and they're they're not saying no but i, I do want to say having said that i didn't think this necessarily signaled a resurgence of conservatism in Canada, I think it's still collectively bad news for the New Democrats. I mean, remember that in uh, British Columbia's provincial election, everybody had said the New Democrats had a very, very good shot at forming government there and then let that slip away from them. So, you know, having lost BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and with all of the turmoil at the federal level, none of that is good news for the New Democrats as a collective organization. But, but do I think that Albertans woke up this week and said, oh, Manitoba voted out their NDP government, and that means something for Rachel Notley. I don't think so. 
but does it put any extra pressure on her as the last NDP premier standing as someone as the NDP premier who has to sort of serve as the shining example of what an NDP premier can do? You know, does it put more pressure on her, Graham, to do something like achieve a pipeline, like get those those things done that conservatives before her couldn't do? I, th I think the pressure is on her regardless of what's happened with NDP elsewhere. The pressure is on her in Alberta to get some result. And unless the price of oil goes up, they need to get a pipeline approved. And it's interesting now, we're seeing her being a lot more flexible on her position now. When you know, before she was against Northern Gateway, now yeah. all of a sudden she's saying, look, we're willing to keep an open mind on Northern Gateway now. In fact, I think the Minister of Energy, Quake Boyd, was talking about how they're kind of pro-pipelines, all pipelines now are on the table. So before they were strictly uh, Energy East and Kinder Morgan, now they're saying that uh, Northern Gateway, you know, we'll a deal perhaps could be worked out with with BC and some kind of and quid deal pro quo with, with, uh, with yeah with power from yeah. the, from yeah. BC so BC's you know building um, a hydro um, plant or uh, program or project rather and the idea is BC could sell us electricity help us get off coal in exchange though they could maybe give us permission to get that well the permission in a sense it's a federal responsibility but the provinces do play a part so BC then could maybe be, be a bit more welcoming to Alberta getting that pipeline uh, the BC be more welcoming uh, here's a social license for you and a social license for you <laughs> and a social license for you Keith the mm -hmm. Alberta premiers have been trying this for a long time with BC uh, what's different now it's it's hard to say uh, uh, you know there for Notley anyway the you know there does seem to be a, a real need to get a win on a pipeline it doesn't seem to matter which pipeline it is uh, energies there's been some opposition to that we don't know what's going to happen there Keystone has been stalled in the US there's even some opposition to the Kinder Morgan line that's been proposed so I guess if she sees an opening here for uh, for Going gateway province is easier than yeah <laughs> then then this is then this is what she's going to hang her hat on because uh, at least in, in Calgary in the southern part of the province where there's all kinds of job losses in the energy sector, getting a new pipeline in is going to be a big political win. The thing is, though, the, you know, the price of oil has fallen so far that a new pipeline is not, not going to save them in the sense that you know we'll get more money for our oil because it'd be taken to tidewater and we get world prices. But the world price is pretty low, so it's not going to save the government in terms of its budget. But it does become a symbolic victory. Where Gives the her some political capital. Absolutely. Where, where the um, NDP could actually uh, get a pipeline approved where the conservatives before her could not. Do you think this this sort of softening of her stance on Northern Gateway has anything to do with the, the fallout uh, from the Leap Manifesto discussions at the NDP convention here in Edmonton a few yeah. weeks ago? I, I think it does. And I think that, you know, ironically... Uh, whatever the intentions of the Leap Manifesto authors, they've given Rachel Notley, I won't say social license again, but the, <laughs> but the political license and the political capital to push back in a way, you know, I mean, it, it, I've really been struck over the last couple of weeks how much her rhetoric echoes that of Ed Stelmack when Stelmack tried to, you know, bring in a price for carbon and tried to make that green uh, social license argument. I mean, once you're sitting in the premier's chair, the realpolitik of needing the oil and gas resource revenues. I mean, you know, I, I don't think we can stress enough that provincial budget where we're short $10 billion in resource revenues that were here last year. And Graham's right, with oil prices, even international oil prices this depressed, it, it, it's not a magic answer, but it will at least get people working on pipeline construction and it may indeed you know incent other 
other development because people will say, okay, we, we have forward momentum. We could talk about this forever, I'm sure, pipelines and oil and, and all the rest of it as we have on this podcast, but we won't because we do want to switch gears now to a different topic, and it's one that I brought Keith in on uh, specifically for the issue of sick leave, long-term disability uh, among Alberta Health Services employees. Now, there were a few different reports on this topic this week, uh, including one from you, Keith, that showed the number of sick days and the length of long-term disability is increasing uh, among employees, I think over the past three years, if the data, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I'm one of them. Okay. It also kind of seemed really confusing and convoluted, and I was hearing lots of different things in the legislature from different members of different political parties, the Wild Rose, the, the Liberals. Um, so let's try and chip away at that confusion for our listeners if we can, Keith. Help us. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this this is really confusing, and, and uh, you know, bear with me because as we try to go through this a little bit, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible uh, because I spent a good chunk of the week trying to figure this stuff out. So it basically started on Monday when our colleagues from uh, CTV uh, put out a report uh, about um, uh, sick leave being taken by non-unionized people, including a lot of managers. And and what they found uh, from a scan of documents from AHS was that they didn't put a number on it, but they said hundreds and hundreds of this these non-unionized workers were taking their maximum of 16 weeks sick leave time and then they even found some cases where people were taking more than that and the opposition latched onto this and especially the wild rose because this feeds right into their wheelhouse of ahs has got this bloated lazy bureaucracy that's just wasting money and that's why we're paying so much for health care um but you know, and I don't like throwing my colleagues under the bus. I felt that CTV story was very poorly constructed. Uh, they did not actually count how many employees were taking the maximum sick leave or going beyond that. They didn't put it in context of whether um, this number was high or low compared to the national average. In fact, it, it does seem to turn out that it wasn't any higher uh, than the national average, may in fact have been lower. Um, but we just don't know because the actual numbers weren't counted. So that was part of it. The second thing that happened was David Swan put out a press release uh, late Tuesday evening. Very late Tuesday evening. That's right. And it had to be corrected. So yeah. um, so it was, and this was even more confusing. The, the numbers that he got from AHS in his, his Freedom of Information request show uh, some costs of sick leave, but also a lot more on long-term disability. The, the numbers of employees on long-term disability and the costs that have increased, uh, if, you, if you see this, it looks like the costs have even doubled or tripled over the last few years for long-term disability. And it was broken down by union, AUPE, United Nurses of Alberta, uh, Health Sciences Association, and so on. Uh, and his argument was, well, this isn't just the non-union people. This is everybody at AHS. So it's a big culture problem there that that people are taking a you know long time a long time off. But again, going through the numbers, it's really confusing. Things don't necessarily add up. And AHS's explanation is, well, the reason that costs go up and the reason that numbers of people on long-term disability go up every year is because it's long-term disability. They rise every year because people who are sick and on long-term disability, they stay on long-term disability a year or two years or three years. So the numbers are going to go up every year. Yeah, unless people die while they're on long-term disability. Right, or turn 65 or or decide to leave their jobs, right, which doesn't happen very often, right? So that, that I do actually buy as an explanation. And their their argument that, again, they are still below the national average in terms of people taking sick days 
is, I think, a valid one. I have not seen any evidence that there that there is a significant problem at AHS other uh, over other health systems. And as uh, as I'm sure Paula will mention here, it is a health workforce. There is a, a lot of stress in that job, and so they may have more time cause to take time off than other professions. Interesting. Yes, because before we turned the microphones on, this is what I was saying. I mean, if you, th- if you think about the kind of work that frontline health workers do, it's very emotionally and physically taxing. I mean, and I think from from the, the numbers I was looking at, lots of those LTD, long-term disability claims, were for psychological, psychiatric reasons and not for physical ones. Mental um, health was number one. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, okay. you know, imagine you're a pediatric oncology nurse or that uh, you work in an OR, or you're working uh, with dementia patients. I mean, those kinds of jobs are emotionally draining. And I think uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me, not that I have crunched these numbers, if statistically there was you know, a greater likelihood of people suffering from depression or PTSD from those kinds of frontline things. That said, I think the reason that stories like this resonate with people is that most of us don't have disability plans like that. Lots of lots of workers and lots of, of people in Alberta, you know, the idea that people can bank their sick leave always drives me bananas. I mean, sick leave is for presumably when you're sick, not for you to save up for some special occasion. Um, so I think that's, the, I mean, it's envy, I think, that makes a lot of people upset when they see these stories because they don't think, oh, how wonderful it is that somebody who's really ill is being properly taken care of by our our system. What they say is, hey, you know, where's where's my piece of that? Keith, obviously, Dr. Swan put this out, raising the issue of mental health. Uh, um, it was part of it, yeah. What does he want to see the government do then? Well, I mean, his major argument for this is that the constant reorganization at AHS, uh, change of leadership at the top, revolving door of executives, having a board, not a board, back to a board again. He says this does have an impact on the frontline workforce, that people don't know where their decision-making authority is. They don't know where they're getting orders from. They have to wait for managers to decide things uh, and it, it builds up stress and anxiety and frustration and this is part of the reason why mental health becomes the number one reason people take time off work. I buy some of that uh, but I think Paul is right that the bigger the bigger issue is just that it is a high stress work environment uh, and and seeing the, the things that they do every day uh, that's likely the more the bigger reason why people are taking time off. So for Swan at this point I think he'd like more answers I think he'd like a, a you know a satisfaction survey done at AHS. Uh, But at this point, I don't think he has any real sort of definitive solution to this uh, other than just getting more information and trying to stop the trying to stop the turmoil at the top of AHS. And I think everybody would like to do that. I have to say it was interesting to watch in question period, the health minister take questions on this subject from the official opposition and then from David Swan later on in the rotation. She certainly looked happier to take David Swan's question. Yeah, well, I think a little bit more of a reasoned uh, approach from David Swan. I, I want to switch gears because you guys, I, s- I save the best discussion for last today. Um, it's where we took our episode name from this week as well. You know, I love me some legislature drama and we definitely had our share of that on Monday. Um, this week, interim PC leader Rick McIver stood up to the Speaker of the Assembly 
an exceedingly rare event in the legislature, and he refused to back down. Or actually, he refused to sit down until he had to be escorted out of the legislature by the assistant sergeant-at-arms. Oh, how I wish I was in the legislature to watch all of that happen. Alas, I was not. It is a little bit convoluted. It all starts with this private member's motion. But luckily for you all, we're going to break it down. So, Graham, what is this all about? What happened to get him so riled up? Okay, I'll give you the same caveat that Keith gave. This gets convoluted, and I'll try and hit the, the main notes. As convoluted to. in a different way. It's more procedural. It is, but what is? It's convoluted in a, in a way that... With procedure. Okay, McIver brings <laughs> in a motion 504. Now, motions don't happen that often. They draw lotteries among the private members to see who can bring a motion forward, and he actually won. And these motions are not binding on government. They're symbolic. And Rick McIver's dealt with, uh, broadly speaking, education, that parents should be at the center, have the right to send their kids to whatever they want to... Whatever kind of school. Basically, Absolutely. he was asking the government to affirm a parent's choice to send their student anywhere. Anywhere, including, uh, first and foremost, it was like homeschooling was first. So, so the government, though... Homeschooling, private schools. Charter, charter schools, schools, Catholic yeah. separate, well, francophone, okay. Yeah. Okay, we'll public. Get, okay, yeah. okay, we'll get the details. We'll be here all day. <laughs> <laughs> we will be oh, here all day. we love the details. Okay, go, uh, go, go, go. Anyway, so the government brings in an amendment through one of its uh, backbench MLAs, Robin Luff. And that amendment basically turns the motions upside down. And it says, first and foremost, the government supports public schools, public education. And so at first, McIver's getting upset, thinking, well, hold on for a second. This is turning my, my motion upside down. And you don't normally do amendments. In fact, yeah. you, you never heard the people, the amendments to a motion are unusual because a motion is basically a private member's feelings. Yeah. And to say, <laughs> so if you amend that, and all, and all, all of a sudden, Rick McIver's motion is no longer Rick McIver's motion. Yeah, it, it would be kind of awkward if Rick McIver couldn't vote for the motion that he introduced to the House. I mean, right. that would that would be, it's totally, it is bad form for the government to come out and try and, and, and amend a, a private so member's motion. To me, like it's that. kind of a case where McIver is kind of being a libertarian, talking about homeschooling and separate schools and charter schools, and the government's saying, no, we want to put public, public education first and foremost. So what happened then? There's a debate. Is that amendment from Robin Love, from the NDP, appropriate? And they begin debating the amendment. And as On a point that, of order, it was. Right. And so what they start doing is, is they start handing out the copies of the amendments to all the MLAs. But Rick McIver gets a second piece of paper, which is basically a summation, a, a ruling in favor of the amendment already pre-written. And as McIver's reading this, thinking, what the heck is this? Up stands the speaker, Warner, and starts reading that ruling. And McIver's thinking, well, hold on for a second. We just began this debate on the amendment, and now there's a ruling on the amendment pre-written. How could this be? Which is why, bong, up goes uh, <laughs> Rick McIver, like it springs on his feet and says, what the heck's going on here? This is not right. Speaker looks really perplexed, going, what are you talking about? And it goes back and forward. So you've got McIver thinking there's a skunk here, that there's something smells that, to him, it seems that the speaker is in collusion with the government to overturn basically his amendment, uh, sorry, his, his motion. And so they go back and forth. The speaker's saying, please sit down. McIver's saying, I'm not sitting down until you reverse that ruling. What, yeah. What's going on here? That's why he was so upset. It was a fact that he 
thought that the speaker was doing something in, inappropriate. So the speaker, of course, has the ultimate authority and says basically to McIver, you're going to have to leave. And that's when he's marched out yeah. by the assistant. It was quite it was quite a showdown. The speaker asked McIver to sit down a few times. I mean, you don't see this happen very often. And so I've never seen it happen. Yeah, like that. Never. I, I we came close, I think, a couple of years ago. Laurie Blakeman was getting pretty riled up um, uh, during a debate and uh, was uh, shouting down to to Speaker Gene Zwazeski and almost got kicked out. Well, normally what happens when a person's tossed out is because one member has insulted another member. Yeah. Uh, the Lawrence Decor called um, Klein a mouse uh, back in 1991. And a mouse? A mouse. And he wouldn't take it back and he was... He wouldn't take it out. back. <laughs> so what happened? And so this, this big kerfuffle, what the heck happened here the following day on Tuesday, the beginning of the, of the sitting, the session that day, the speaker stands up and says, look, you know, there's an unfortunate incident yesterday. I want to say that ruling I was reading from, the table officers, the parliamentary council, was aware an amendment was coming forward, and they had been asked to look at the amendment by the NDP. Is this amendment legal? Can we bring it forward? speaker didn't see that. But the table officers draw up sort of a, a summation or some advice to the yes. speaker as to what would be appropriate. So they they w they held that back as well from the speaker until the amendment was brought in. Then the table officers give the amendment and their summation, their advice to the speaker. But for some reason, we don't know why, somebody also gave that to Rick McIver. Somebody, he <laughs> says somebody like it's anybody but a page. Mm -hmm. well, um, no, no, but the page, not the page's fault. No, it's no, obviously what I'm saying no, is that somehow the don't papers... Don't blame the pages. I'm not blaming the page. Obviously, the page handed it out. What I'm saying is somehow that paper got mixed in with the amendments. The, the, yeah, and Rick McIver got... Murphy's Law here. Yeah. He, he gets a copy of it, So, which is why. So the speaker's saying, look, there's nothing untoward here. This is the way it happens. The table officers are always looking out to, to help me out yeah. to thinking in advance. You got to think doing. the table officers, especially with the case of this new speaker, have their work cut out for them and probably are, are doing quite a bit of, of, of some of that. Uh, they're doing it all the time. You see, sometimes you know, they'll be talking to him on the, on the floor, you know, whispering in his ears yeah. what he should, uh, should not be doing. So that was Warner's explanation. And then he invited um, uh, McIver back to make an apology, basically. <laughs> and Except McIver, it was not an apology. Hashtag, no, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Fact, what was on, on Hansard, it says, it says members, members apology. apology. <laughs> but actually, he just said, basically, uh, sorry, he didn't say sorry. The he first line says, thank you for inviting me back, back in the house. And I think that's why there's no apology, because the speaker in allowed him back. him back in. Look, the speaker knew there was a screw up and uh, it wasn't McIver's fault. McIver did go over uh, the... He, he, he should not have... He not. shouldn't have been um, pushing the chair like that. You but, don't refuse to sit down when the speaker says sit but down. But McIver, what he did say was, um, you know, I appreciate and I recognize the authority of the chair of the speaker to toss people like me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah. is totally true. It was funny. I put it on Twitter and I, I challenged people to find the apology. Of course, there was none in there. But, uh, you know, we've all we've all had friends who make apologies like that. But you know, the, but the, but the issue is, and I think this is the important thing. It, it's like in a game of soccer or hockey. If you think the ref made a bad call, sometimes refs make bad calls. Sometimes it looks outrageously unfair. But the referee has the authority to kick people out of the game or make people go to the penalty box, then you can fight about it afterwards. I mean, you cannot say to the speaker, I'm not sitting down. I mean, there are, you know, a thousand years of parliamentary procedure and protocol that the speaker is supreme in the House in that way. And I'm trying to imagine what Kowalski would have done oh. well, to yeah, somebody well. who challenged his authority that <laughs> the way. The difference is here. The difference is here. 
Kowalski wouldn't have got himself in that position. Kowalski was very you know, sharp on his feet and knew the rules cold. Yeah. Uh, so the problem is, this is an example where Bob Warner is still learning the job. Very yeah. good. And he is giving the crib notes beforehand, basically, I think, to actually help him along. It's a tough job, and he's learning that job in the public eye. So they're trying to help him out. Uh, what he should have done, you know, either if you're really experienced as a speaker, you would know what to do and massage this thing, or you'd say, you know something, good point you're raising here, let's go back and think this one over and I can get back to you because there's, there's no timeline under the decision. He can take you know, days if he wants to. I think he's trying to move along the business of the yeah. house. But I think that this is an example where Warner is very new and he is still learning that job very obvious. Well, then if he doesn't have the authority and the respect, then you know that, that's the other thing. Everybody lived in terror of Ken, Ken Kowalski when he was speaker. Uh, if they're not in terror of Bob Warner, then... Well, got, I can get out of hand, absolutely. Yeah. But I gotta say, in, on Rick McIver's behalf, and I'm here, I'm defending uh, McIver. You got, from his point of view, it was outrageous what was happening. He was reading this document pre-written backing up the government from the speaker before the debate was even over. So he was thinking, holy cow, so he got really emotional. And that doesn't happen very often. And so I can understand why he was so upset. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the speaker has the authority to say, you're out of here. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the NDP withdrew the amendment. Uh, yeah, they had to, to, yeah. Uh, to keep the peace. Also, i got to wonder, why was the government so keen on turning upside down McIver's motion? Well, well Mason called it a wedge issue. He called it a wedge issue. We ha and I mean, we have been seeing this week the question of public funding for private schools in the spotlight, obviously. Yeah. And I think that's where this came from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Edmonton Public... Um, you know, is is on record. Michael Jans, the chair of the Edmonton Public School Board, brought forward a motion saying, you know, the public board, I mean, because this is a completely disinterested thing, of course. The public board is in favor of public education. Okay. You know, Marilyn Bergstra, the chair of the Edmonton Catholic School District, was on Twitter denouncing funding for private schools, which I thought was pretty rich. I said to her on Twitter, so just so I'm clear about this, you're in favor of government funding for your faith-based school, but nobody else's faith-based yeah. school. I, I think there is a, a big debate lurking out there. I think about it's emotion, though. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah. binding on the government. No, yeah. but, but, but I mean, that's, but you know, you're wondering, you know, what, what propelled oh, the NDP to yeah. do that, obviously, you know, but but the opposition does this all the time, though. Their motions are often designed to tie the government up in knots and force them into difficult decisions, right? That, that's the intent of a lot of these motions. When the NDP was in opposition, they would write these kind of motions, too, something inflammatory about climate change or the environment and forcing the government to, you know, to deal with that issue as well, the PC government at that time. Yeah, so that, that's what they do with these oh, motions. Oh, I know. And listen, this is, this is motion 504, motion 503. Remember? Was a few years ago, that was from Kent Hare and the Liberals talking about the need for a right GSAs. for students to have gay straight alliances. And in where did we end up with that? And a bill. Uh, well, that led to a bill uh, yeah. by the Liberals, of course, the private which was co-opted by the PCs. Oh, I remember Bill Ten. Don't but, worry. Um, <laughs> the motion five hundred three from Kent Hare actually was defeated by the the PCs and the yeah. Wild Rose. Um, and and the wild world. And it was and that was actually that actually backfired on them very interestingly. And you're right. It is interesting though, because private private motions private members in Alberta don't have a lot of time to conduct their business in the legislature. They're really limited. They have to share Mondays. And it was, you know, I think ba pretty bad form on the government. They didn't win them. They didn't do themselves any favors once again by by doing this. It seems like the NDP gets itself into trouble in a lot of ways in the legislature with these kinds of 
with these kinds of things like the vote that happened for the the um, the deputy speaker a couple weeks back now this these like weird sort of procedural things where it's like why are you doing that <laughs> and they're still learning you know the two things they're still learning and i think it's because they saw the government do things before into the pcs uh, in a very underhanded way from their point of view they're thinking Maybe we can do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm serious. <laughs> What's know. good for the goose? Yeah. Well, and we have heard them say that a lot when it comes to um, decisions that they've made that may- people are maybe like, well, why are you doing that? And they said, well, you, the PCs did yeah. it. So, you know, I we are coming up to one year and the argument that they're still learning, um, they need to get some better teachers and they need to learn faster because, you know, a, a rookie year... I don't, why am I indulging in so many sports metaphors today? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this is very unlike you. But, it's you know, they're, 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 you, know um, uh, you come in with promise like Connor McDavid, you break your bones, then, you know, you got to so, – you know what's going to make you captain unless you learn how to play the game. Guys, did the she rules. do those sports metaphors right? I don't even know. It was, it was pretty good. I give her about an 8 out of 10. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, then on that note, <laughs> we're going to move to good stuff. <laughs> um, that, uh, sorry. So before we wrap up, we'll go to good stuff. That's when our panelists share their favorite read, watch, or listen of the week. Paula, what do you have? Graham and I are sharing because we had the same thing. So we, we could, we'll do it together. Uh, go ahead. Go, okay. go oh, you're not going to say it in unison? <laughs> <laughs> Please do not. Graham and I are recommending that everybody should read uh, Mr. Justice Charles Valancourt's ruling in the Mike Duffy fraud tr- and bribery trial because it's a thing. Whatever oh. I saw on Twitter yesterday was so interesting. So I, I'm, I'm it's fascinated. Not only did he acquit uh, or exonerate Duffy of all 31 charges, he came down really heavy on the prime minister's office under oh, Harper. It was, I've never seen a decision. You've read a lot more than I have, Paula. It was really clearly written, very interesting, and exclamation marks. There were exclamation marks in it? Yeah. It, Are you serious? He was flabbergasted. What? <laughs> it, you know, I mean, he really seems quite honestly taken aback at the way a prime minister's office works. I mean, and one can wonder whether, you know, he's a bit naive. Maybe uh-huh. about how prime minister's office works, but he he was just. I mean, I, I loved the part where he said, "Really, you know, if anybody benefited from the ninety thousand dollars, you know, who was the beneficiary of this alleged bribe? It was the PMO, not Mike Duffy. I mean, yeah. so Duffy goes back to the Senate with all his rights and all his office staff, the and all his, all his, you know, yeah, he's back. Also, it makes you almost wish that Harper was still in power. You know, Harper hasn't said a word about this, and he likely never will. Has he been in the House of Commons? He has been there. He hasn't spoken in the House. No. It's a thing worth reading. Awesome. That is a great recommendation. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> uh, Keith, what do you have? Uh, my recom- uh, recommendations are a bit sentimental. I'm going to recommend two pieces of work that uh, are... Uh, my favorites of the work of one uh, Miriam Ibrahim. Um, so Keith, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I Go know. On. Go on. <laughs> so one is from a few years ago. It is uh, your coverage of the night of the Hub Mall shooting uh, at West Ed- uh, Sorry, not West Edmonton Mall, the University of Alberta. Uh, Miriam led that story, was first on scene, and we got the best coverage that night because of your reporting. So I want people to see your breaking news skills there. Uh, and then more recently, I want to draw people to the profile you did recently of Brian Jean in his first year of uh, leadership of the Wild Rose. And I think this was the first profile I read of Brian Jean that humanized him, that got inside his head and and really showed him for who he is and where he wants to take the party. I thought it was very well done. You're so kind. Paula looks morose. (laughs) I'm so sad. I am so sad. 
Thank you very much, Keith, for making those recommendations. That's really sweet. You know what my recommendation is for everyone to go out and get a damn newspaper subscription and support the work (laughs) that you fine folks are doing. Yay. So that is my good stuff recommendation because it's the gift that keeps on giving. It just keeps arriving every day. It's beautiful. We'll be sure to post those links online. That is a wrap on this, my final episode of the Press Gallery. Uh, You can find this episode and an archive of past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and via TuneIn Radio. Subscribe, and a fresh edition of the Press Gallery will be delivered right to you. Thanks to Paula, Keith, Graham, and Greg Southam, our videographer this week. Of course, thank you all for listening. I'm Miriam Ibrahim, and they'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.